Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Sweet Leaf, where we discuss perioperative management of medical cannabis, its definition, mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics, anaesthetic implications and recommendations. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCOM. With the fairly recent legalisation of medical cannabis in both Australia and New Zealand, we in anaesthesia are very likely to encounter more and more patients presenting for surgery in whom medical cannabis is a mainstay of treatment for a variety of different conditions. To name a few, these include cancer pain, anorexia, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis and autism. And with the slowly increasing body of evidence governing the use of medical cannabis, we thought it high time that we discuss the perioperative implications. The term cannabis is an umbrella term for a range of compositions made from the cannabis plant and its synthetic derivatives. The two most well-known and pharmacologically active of these are tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, and cannabidiol, or CBD. THC is the compound that produces the high associated with recreational marijuana use. Cannabidiol is a non-psychoactive cannabinoid with increasing evidence backing its use in many medical settings. According to the World Health Organization, cannabidiol exhibits no effects indicative of any abuse or dependence potential, and they advise that there is no evidence of public health-related problems associated with the use of pure CBD. Medical cannabis mostly comprises preparations that have a low concentration of THC coupled with a high proportion of CBD, though some specific preparations have a high dose of THC. They have more accurately identified components and are prepared in a more homogenized form. These medications are prescribed based on specific dosages, frequencies and routes of administration and have well-defined ratios of THC to CBD. Recreational cannabis is vastly different to medical cannabis in that it contains up to 400 compounds, including cannabinoids and other cannabis plant components such as terpenes and flavonoids. Recreational cannabis has a much higher concentration of THC, and with our limited scientific data on recreational cannabis, it is likely that other minor cannabinoids and non-cannabinoid components like the terpenes and flavonoids may actually have a major effect on the potency of cannabis. This is called the entourage effect. Recreational cannabis has large variation in the concentration of components derived from inflorescence or bud products, even if they're from the same stem, which means that it's almost impossible to quantify the true composition of these products. Now, before we continue on, let's briefly discuss pharmacokinetics. Cannabis exerts its actions on the endocannabinoid system, which consists of cannabinoid receptors, endogenous cannabinoids, and enzymes responsible for their synthesis and metabolism. This system works closely with the endogenous opioid system, but also overlaps with the normal physiology of pain. 
A good illustrator of this is that endogenous cannabinoids are derived from arachidonic acid. Basically, endogenous cannabinoids are released in relation to acute stress and pain to cause anti-nociception by acting on inhibitory cannabinoid type 1 receptors, which we'll talk about soon. This system is still relatively poorly understood, but may be involved in regulating physiological and cognitive processes, including fertility, pregnancy, immunity, appetite, pain, and mood, to name a few. Cannabinoid type 1 receptors are widely distributed throughout the CNS and PNS, specifically in the hippocampus, cerebral cortex, olfactory areas, basal ganglia, cerebellum, and dorsal horn of the spinal cord, but interestingly are less concentrated in the brainstem. They mediate the inhibition of neurotransmitter release and through this mechanism are associated with their analgesia and mood-modifying effects. Cannabinoid type 2 receptors are distributed mainly in the peripheral lymphoid and hematopoietic cells, suggesting a possible immunomodulatory function. They are associated with the modulation of cytokine release and also have an anti-inflammatory effect. THC is a partial agonist at cannabinoid type 1 and 2 receptors, and based on the distribution of these receptors, it likely accounts for the effects on nociception, angiolysis, memory, cognition and emotion, but with sparing of respiratory depression. CBD is not an agonist to these receptors, but causes allosteric modulation of both cannabinoid type 1 and 2 receptors. So, Kate, I'm just going to stop you there and ask you, what exactly does allosteric modulation mean? So, from what I understand, CBD affects the way that the cannabinoid type 1 and type 2 receptors interact with the endogenous endocannabinoid substrates. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Excellent. All right. So, of particular relevance to anaesthetists and the medical community in general, cannabinoids, particularly CBD, exert additional effects on the neurological system through signaling at many other receptors such as adenosine, serotonergic, glycine, nuclear peroxisome proliferator activated receptors or PPARs, and transient receptor potential channels of the vanilloid subtype ion channels, the capacin target. Cannabinoids also interact with opioid, NMDA, and GABA systems, so it's a complex little molecule. Mm. Medical cannabis can be administered via inhalation, tablets, or capsules to swallow sublingually or transdermally. The inhaled route produces the fastest absorption with peak plasma concentrations 10 minutes after administration. Other routes are slower. So for the sublingual route, peak plasma concentrations are achieved at 30 minutes. Orally, this extends to 30 to 120 minutes. And the slowest route is transdermally with peak plasma concentrations at 120 minutes. The bioavailability of inhaled THC and CBD ranges from 10 to 35%, whereas for the oral route, bioavailability is less and ranges from 2 to 20%. There is also a difference in the duration of action for the different routes. Inhaled cannabis exerts a pharmacologic effect from between 2 and 4 hours, whereas the effect of oral cannabis is longer at 4 to 6 hours. Cannabis is mainly hydroxylated and glucuronidated in the liver by the cytochrome P450 enzymes. Both THC and CBD are metabolized to more than 80 metabolites, each that are eliminated via bile, urine and feces. Though cannabis has a prolonged elimination half-life of 20 to 30 hours, this can be significantly prolonged with frequent and chronic use, with a tissue half-life of up to 30 days because of its accumulation in fat. Urinary cannabis metabolites are present for between 14 and 30 days. Oof, that's a lot of content to swallow in a short period of time. You survived? Just. 
Um, but let's talk about how cannabis affects our anaesthetic. Before we start, though, it's important to keep in mind that the majority of cannabis research is based on patients using recreational cannabis and not medic medical cannabis. In some cases, studies have been conducted on patients taking medical cannabis and will be sure to specifically mention if this is the case. Overall, though, study quality is highly variable, which doesn't help. First, there are some implications for airway management. Lab studies have consistently shown that cannabis causes bronchodilation and decreased airway resistance with inhaled and oral administration. However, when administered via smoking, it may result in the usual airway hyperactivity, edema, obstruction, chronic cough, bronchitis, emphysema and bronchospasm that's seen with tobacco smoking. As well as this, there is a suggestion in the literature that cannabis cigarettes may actually be more irritating to the airway than tobacco cigarettes because cannabis burns at a higher temperature than tobacco. Something else to consider when preparing to manage the medical cannabis patient's airway is that THC delays gastric emptying. Now, as we said earlier, the majority of medical cannabis preparations contain either no or low concentrations of THC and higher concentrations of CBD, but it's still worthwhile remembering this and factoring this into your airway plan. Great point, Kate. Now, what about the cardiovascular system? So THC and CBD exert different effects on the cardiovascular system. THC stimulates the sympathetic nervous system and suppresses the parasympathetic nervous system, ultimately causing increases in heart rate, myocardial oxygen demand, supine blood pressure and platelet activation. And this is associated with endothelial dysfunction and oxidative stress. Conversely, CBD may reduce the heart rate and blood pressure and promote vasodilation. In patients that chronically consume cannabis, especially in high doses, there is modulation of the autonomic nervous system, so there is a diminished sympathetic nervous system activation and increased parasympathetic nervous system activation, leading to bradycardia and hypotension. Ultimately, the final endpoint for the cardiovascular effects depends on the frequency and chronicity of use and the THC-CBD ratio, the route of administration, the dose and the elapsed time since administration. Another consideration for anaesthetic planning is that there are multiple case reports linking cannabis to acute myocardial infarction. A study evaluating patients with acute MI in the setting of cannabis use found that the risk of myocardial infarction increased almost fivefold after smoking and that this heightened risk was limited to the first hour after smoking. A retrospective population-based cohort study showed that chronic cannabis consumption was associated with a meaningful increase in the risk of perioperative myocardial infarction where adjusted odds were 1.88 times higher. Hmm. Mm. There was also a 2.3 to 2.9 fold increase in the incidence of cerebrovascular ischemia in young cannabis users when compared to tobacco smokers where the etiology is both atherosclerosis and cerebral vasospasm. That's kind of scary. Yeah, that's so right. So moving on, how does cannabis affect the gastrointestinal system? Well, first and foremost, there are many potential drug interactions as a result of common metabolism by the cytochrome P450 enzyme system. We can see either increases in cannabinoid levels or increases in levels of other drugs metabolized by these enzymes. Some of these include ketoconazole, cotrimoxazole, fluoxetine, amiodarone, and warfarin. When it comes to drug interactions, it's also possible to see additive effects when cannabinoids are combined with sympathomimetics, anticholinergics, and CNS depressants, specifically ketamine. While the literature supports the use of cannabis in the management of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, data in its application for post-op nausea and vomiting is lacking. Cannabinoid use can actually elicit nausea via a couple of mechanisms. 
Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is associated with chronic heavy daily cannabis use and cannabis withdrawal after chronic use may itself elicit nausea. It is worth mentioning that both of these are more relevant to recreational cannabis rather than medical cannabis patients. Evidence assessing the PONV risk with chronic cannabis users yields varying results. Some trials show an increased risk of PONV, whereas others show no difference in risk between chronic users and non-users. And lastly, as we've already mentioned, THC causes delayed gastric emptying. Now let's move on to the CNS and we'll start talking about anaesthetic depth monitoring. A clinical study published in 2018 looked at the effect of a synthetic medical cannabis, which is called nabiximols, or the brand name Savitex, as a pre-med on the intraoperative biz for patients having a GA, and found that high doses of nabiximols was associated with higher bis values. Though these findings were deemed due to cannabis-induced abnormal EEG and not reflective of anaesthetic depth, it may mean that this is not useful to gauge anaesthetic depth in these patients. Of note, this has not been tested on chronic users. And as we mentioned before, the increase in heart rate and blood pressure in medical cannabis patients may also not be useful as an indicator of insufficient anaesthetic depth. Cannabis is also known to result in increased drug dose requirements. A prospective study from 2009 that compared propofol induction doses for 30 non-cannabis users and 30 patients using recreationally more than once per week found that chronic use increased the dose of propofol required for satisfactory induction of general anesthesia. A 2019 retrospective cohort study comparing the amount of sedation needed in 25 chronic cannabis-using patients versus 225 non-cannabis-using patients for gastroscopy showed that for the duration of the procedure, cannabis users required 14% more fentanyl, 19.6% more midazolam, and a whopping 220.5% more propofol. And when looking at sevoflurane maintenance during isolated tibial fracture or if surgery, cannabis-using patients required more volatile anaesthetic. So, Kate, does this match up with your clinical experience of treating patients who use, um, I suppose at this point, mostly recreational cannabis? Yeah, so I've only... I've really only anaesthetized people who use recreational cannabis and I would say 100% that that's the case. Yeah, I just have an outstanding memory as a registrar of um, treating a young man that smoked about 25 joints a day. Mm. He probably only weighed about 50 kilos mm. and 600 milligrams or three vials of propofol later oh gosh. was still not completely asleep. So mm. I would say this study is quite reflective of a lot of our Absolutely. Um, experiences in I in wholeheartedly theater. agree. Absolutely. <laughs> So look, discussion on cannabis and its CNS effects wouldn't be complete without addressing pain management. There are a couple of retrospective cohort studies that have looked at post-operative pain scores in chronic cannabis users. Of note, this is a combination of medical and recreational users and compared these scores to non-users. In major orthopaedic surgery, patients taking pre-op cannabinoids had higher post-op pain scores both at rest and at movement. In this study, patients taking cannabinoids were also noted to have a higher incidence of sleep derangement, and this was attributed to higher pain scores and possible withdrawal symptoms. For abdominal surgery, cannabis-consuming patients required 23% more opioids than cannabis-naive patients. There are studies evaluating the acute prescription of cannabinoids for the management of acute pain, particularly in trauma patients, but as this is not legal practice within Australia and New Zealand, we will not address this here. That said, in the latest publication of ANSCA's Acute Pain Management Scientific Evidence 5th edition, they discuss the evidence relating to the use of cannabis for acute pain management. Basically, current evidence does not support its use in this setting. So, Kate, last but not least, let's briefly discuss cannabis withdrawal. 
Right. So as we've mentioned earlier, CBD doesn't exert effects indicative of any abuse or dependence potential. This discussion about withdrawal is really relevant to patients taking medical cannabis that contains a THC component and, of course, for recreational users. The onset of withdrawal symptoms generally occurs within one to two days of cessation, peaks at one week and abates within about two to four weeks. The good news is that symptoms are generally mild in humans and can include fatigue, depressed mood, irritability, agitation, insomnia, hot flashes, sweating, rhinorrhea, loose stools, hiccups, nausea and anorexia. Okay, so as we've discussed, cannabis pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics pertaining to the provision of anesthesia in patients consuming cannabis. Now let's address the recommendations on how to manage patients taking medical cannabis who present for elective surgery. So the bad news is, unfortunately, there are no formal guidelines about how to prepare these patients preoperatively, only suggestions by researchers based upon their findings. There appear to be two different approaches advocated within the literature when managing medical cannabis dosing prior to surgery. The first is to continue cannabis use until the scheduled surgery and to supplement with equivalent oil-based doses postoperatively. This recommendation is for inhalational users as well. The second recommendation is to stop medical cannabis 72 hours preoperatively. Neither option is without critics or potential pitfalls, and ultimately the decision is a balance of the risk between possible anaesthetic adverse effects and withdrawal. None of the major anaesthetic colleges or societies worldwide have released guidelines as to how to manage these patients and their cannabis dosing prior to surgery. So at this point, we don't have any concrete advice as to what to do. The consensus on recreational cannabis users is that anaesthesia should be avoided if a patient is acutely high, but beyond that, again, there are no formal guidelines. That said, there are many suggestions within the literature about how to approach these patients when they present for surgery. When taking a patient's history, the following are recommended. Routinely question all patients about cannabis use, both medical and recreational. If medical cannabis has been prescribed, ask to see the product license or label as this should provide information like the components and the dose. Ask about any adverse effects and when they occur. Elicit the dose and the frequency of use and the duration of therapy. Ask what happens when the patient skips a dose and whether they get withdrawal. In this instance, you should consider contacting the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Service or ATODS. What is the time since their last dose or exposure? Elicit whether the patient experiences any cardiovascular effects and ensure a pre-op ECG is taken. Also consider a pre-op echo in the event of cardiovascular symptoms. So when planning your actual anaesthetic, consider the following. Aspiration prophylaxis, a plan for managing cardiovascular lability, intra-op or post-op MI and CVA, a plan for managing bronchospasm and airway reactivity intraoperatively, dose adjustment for induction and maintenance drugs, Consider administering a steroid for airway edema, possibly preoperatively. Careful titration of sympathomimetic drugs and drugs metabolised by cytochrome P450 enzymes. And be aware that this monitoring may be misleading. And prior to emergence, be sure to have considered and planned for the following. Anxiety on emergence. This can occur with cannabis toxicity, but is also seen in acute withdrawal. Challenging postoperative pain management, which will likely require multimodal analgesia and higher doses of opioids. And managing cannabis withdrawal symptoms, and this includes contacting ATODs. So in summary, it's important to understand the pharmacokinetics of both THC and CBD and how their pharmacodynamics play out in the setting of an anaesthetic. Though there are no formal guidelines when it comes to perioperative optimization for these patients, consideration of the risks of continuing therapy versus the risks associated with withdrawal may help in deciding whether medical cannabis should be continued perioperatively or ceased. 
Regardless, contacting your hospital's alcohol, tobacco and other drug service is recommended as they may have useful suggestions and can assist in monitoring these patients whilst they're admitted perioperatively. Now, we like to cap off each episode with a brief chat about what we've learned in anaesthetics this week. So, Kate, what have you learned? So, I've learned that... Like we learned in medical school, history taking can sometimes be king. I know these days we have lots of, you know, we like to rely upon, particularly as anaesthetists, upon tests and monitoring and fancy things. But um, I had an elderly person presenting for a plastic surgical procedure who informed me that they had um, been very stressed before their procedure and hadn't been eating or drinking very well. And it turned out that they had put themselves into acute renal failure Mm. with a sodium of 124 Mm. and a magnesium of 0.2. So uh, I suppose that was a clue. And uh, (laughs) we looked at the blood tests and lo and behold, and yeah, so, um, but fortunately they were admitted and everything was corrected and then managed to have their procedure a few days later, which Mm. is great news. Mm. It's good Uh, to have that in index of suspicion isn't it yeah that's right Mm. I just don't think I've ever seen you know someone who was so stressed that they put themselves in that position which is um yeah which is really yeah really you know tells us something about how stressed they were you know how anxiety provoking it was for them so Mm. so Kate what have you learned this week well and this is a bit of a random factoid that I um learned from one of my trainees actually Every now and then we're lucky enough that we get to use a drug called Sugamidex, which is a gamma cyclodextrin that we use to reverse rocuronium neuromuscular blockade. Now, interestingly enough, it's structurally very similar to the active ingredient in Febreze. So go figure. The active ingredient, (laughs) it's called hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin, and it works in pretty much the same way as Sugamidex does on um, rocuronium, where the molecule traps and binds volatilized hydrocarbons within its structural ring, retaining the malodorous molecules and this reduces their volatility and thus the perception of their scent. Well, there you go. Something <laughs> something I didn't know before. I know. I like Very to good. think I've enriched everyone's lives with that little fact. <laughs> now, that was quite a content-heavy discussion on today's episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners and are grateful for all the suggestions today. Be sure to recommend us to your colleagues. You can find us on your usual podcast platform. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.